0: Good afternoon everyone, welcome to a Euroactive hybrid conference supported by Bio. We're discussing today the EU pharma legislation is Europe's biotech innovation in the balance. So Europe has a complex biotech landscape. The market is on course to be worth a staggering 1,848.5 billion US dollars by 2030. That's more than double the current market value of 800 billion dollars. But for the thousands of companies that make up this space, competing in this space, trying to discover and develop life-changing therapies, diagnostic equipment, vaccines, and advanced medicinal products, especially for those, of course, with rare disease, the rules to innovation and financing are complex and differ across member states. Now, this is a stark reality, given the fact that we are, of course, at the advent of technological change. We are just beginning to understand what AI can do for us. EU companies should be on the verge on new innovation, gene therapies and medical breakthroughs. Now, as you all know, in April, the EU outlined a revised legislative pharma package to make the bloc a hub for medical innovation. The goal is to make the EU an attractive and innovation friendly environment for research, for development and production of medicines in Europe. But as we know, the US maintains its top position. China continues to redefine its position in the global pharma industry. And here's just one stat. China outperforms the EU by over 300 billion euros on research and development. So what is this legislation actually going to do? Will it invigorate European ambitions? Where are the opportunities, the bottlenecks? What more is needed to move the needle? So, before we get to our panellists, some of course are assembled on stage, some are joining online. We're going to have a bit of housekeeping. Of course, you are all being live streamed, so if you don't want to be recorded, duck out now. And if you do have any questions, audience, I'm looking at you now, and of course the audience joining online, um, do put them in our Slido um, app. You can scan the QR code. It's very easy. The, The QR code is there on the screens right now. Or what we might even try to do is um, have an open mic so a mic can be passed around the room. You can also download the new Europa bio report by scanning the QR code as well. So please do get involved. You can find out more about the kind of biotechnology that is taking place now. Okay, so let's introduce the panelists then. First of all, joining online, we have MEP Thomas Sokol. He's a member of the European Parliament's Health Committee and a leading voice in the European Parliament on health issues. He's there, yes. Uh, Pleasure to see, as always, um, MEP Sokol. And as always, get ready for some probing questions. Next, we have Hilda Stevens, who sits next to me. She's a co-director at the Institute for Interdisciplinary Innovation in Healthcare at ULB University. Welcome. Next, we have Kirsten Thompson. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Yurcare, a company dealing in synthetic biology. Joining online as well, we have Vivian Sevileki. She's a Chief Operating Officer at Theracell, a leading Greek biotech company. So it's been great to hear your reflections um, on your company and how everything is going for you. Okay, so let's let the panelists introduce themselves. Over first to MEP Sokol.
1: Thank you me for organizing this, uh, I think it's a very timely event because we speak about something which is very, very important, and that is the the pharma legislation. We know that uh, European Union is lagging behind the U.S. in terms of uh, innovation, in terms of approving and developing new medicines. Uh, but also now China is also picking up picking up pace more and more, as you also mentioned. So we definitely have to do something to remain competitive, uh, to to remain strong in the in the global market, and to be able to bring. Uh, Production of medicines to Europe as much as possible. I think uh, we should definitely, when we speak about the pharma legislation, start from the objective, and the objective is to have quality uh, medicines and to have quality healthcare available to all European citizens. But this cannot be done without a strong industry, without stimulating innovation, without providing incentives for developing new cutting-edge medicines on the European territory. So I think that, uh, that uh, these two interests are not op- opposite. I think, that I think they are complementary. So without a st- very strong industry, without a strong system of incentives, without a clear legal framework which stimulates the development of new medicines, we cannot have quality healthcare in the European Union. And that is... Our, obje- our, our objective, and that is my objective in the European Parliament, to make this legislation a real game changer so that we can really ha- uh, develop much more medicines in Europe than it has been possible, possible up until now. In the last 20 years, we've had some positive developments, special incentives and special legislation for orphan drugs, for rare diseases, but this is definitely not enough. So we need so we need a, a clearer uh, more systematic regulation of this we need to we need to stimulate uh, development of new medicines and we, ha- we need to create a, a, an ecosystem where companies especially small companies can develop their medicines without all the obstacles without the unnecessary administration without all the hurdles that they have to face now so I think so I'm optimistic that we are, we will be able to get this done um, uh, the first reading in the parliament. Obviously, uh, the whole legislation cannot be finished before elections. But I hope that the first reading in the parliament will, uh, will be finished before elections, before the end of this mandate, so that after the elections, the new the new parliament uh, can start negotiations with the with the council. If we do, if we are not able to do that, we'll be we'll lose at least another year, and this is something that that the patients in Europe cannot afford. So I think we have to get to work, and uh, and this is and this is something which which is crucial for all of us.
2: You, uh, Hilda. Yes, so I'm Hilda Stevens, uh, co director of I3H, and what we do at the I3H Institute is really interdisciplinary research and education. Some of the research projects really touch upon uh, the GPL as it is. Um, we, for example, are involved together with Imperial College London in a project that really tries to measure. Um, The impact and the equity implications of incentives, uh, incentive mechanisms, and policies on innovation more upstream than the the incentives downstream, HTA, for example. But, and there I would say that systematic regulation really requires a systematic review of what works and what doesn't work, and to have a measurement the impact of the policies installed to see where we need to reinforce and what and, and what doesn't work or not as it should be to uh, target key unmet areas we need uh, more transparency of data and it really for academics it's really hard so this is really one of the key points I would like to make that it's very difficult to make um, Evidence-based policy recommendations. Uh, this is, for example, one thing we do at the institute. Another thing that touches upon the rare disease incentives is also working with PhD researchers, who, for example, one looks at SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, and uh, neurodegenerative rare disease, uh, looking at the cost of medicines, how many medicines are on the market, what is the competition there, which target groups. So really looking at precision medicine how early we need that, because there we really see an uh, an, uh, an issue that we lack behind the U.S. with respect to um, access to medicines, early access to medicines for patients, with respect to, an, um, I would say, also an, implement, an implementation project. We now do, we set up uh, yesterday, actually, a not-for-profit company uh, where we try to really scale up and... Uh, mini Lab uh, developed by a professor at the uh, ULB here in Brussels together with uh, MSF. And we now want to deploy it uh, much larger outside the um, areas of MSF. Uh, so, really going for Mini lab to tackle uh, low resource settings, so affordable access uh, for all, which then tackles upon the uh, policies that are uh, directed towards the Simulation of AMR, or antimicrobial uh, drugs. Mm-hmm.
0: Collaboration there, and we'll touch upon that in a bit later. Kristen.
3: Yes, I'm Kristen Thompson. I'm Chief Operating Officer at Your Care, which is a, a small venture capital investment company. We invest in synthetic biology, which of course includes a lot of products in this advanced medicinal space, um, also rare disease. And our aim is to really catalyze the innovative uh, projects coming out of academia into successful biotechs, which then can be commercialized, or also to take uh, existing biotechs and to really, um, I would say, put equity into those and to help them you know, go further than they normally could, usually using um, non-dilutive money.
0: Okay, well I guess Hilda's really happy to be sat next to you right now then. <laughs>
3: um, next, over to Vivian.
4: Hello. I'm happy to be joining the conversation and actually representing an SME. We are an emerging SME. We are headquartered in Athens, Greece. Our aim is to develop, manufacture advanced therapy medicinal products We are in a joint venture with uh, another company or Genesis and together we do want to implement uh, decentralized manufacturing in order to uh, make cell and gene therapy products available, affordable and accessible to all Europeans.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so you've heard the sort of opening gambit from our panelists then. Um, Kristen, I'll come to you and then Vivian, you you can also add in um, to this question. So this legislation then, is it the great equalizer that the European Commission is really hoping for to give, these, to give European companies, big and, of course, the smaller ones, the opportunity to compete with the likes of the US or China? Or was it just an exercise in legislating?
3: Um, it's definitely not going to be the great equalizer, unfortunately. Um, I think, if anything, this is going to worsen a situation which is already critical. Um, We definitely saw in COVID that uh, Europe starts to be unfortunately behind uh, China and the U.S. when it comes to innovation and to commercialization of medicines for patients. And this, I believe, legislation will just further drive home the point that Europe is stuck in this kind of endless loop of policy and um, needing to define things to such a point that it is really endangering um, small startups in Europe and endangering our ability to take innovation to the market.
0: Is it too much policy and too much red tape?
4: I do agree that uh, it certainly puts a lot of strain uh, on us uh, that we are already under pressure. Uh, we, we are facing many, many challenges in the development that we have to do Uh, It's very difficult to raise investment. Uh, It's very difficult to be able to bring a product into the market. Uh, And uh, uh, the timelines that are set for companies, the regulatory requirements, uh, all these make it a lot more difficult for us. So this pharmaceutical legislation um, uh, uh, makes it even more difficult. There are certain aspects of it that are positive, like the streamlining of the regulatory process, but there are others that are really making it more difficult for us, and we can dive into this further on the discussion, I think.
0: Okay, so I've got to go back to MP Sokol on this one then, um, you were bringing up the next legislative cycle, um, now you've heard what two of your other panelists have said, so let's zero in then on this aspect of opportunity for EU companies um, and the consequences of not getting this legislation right. And before you answer, I'm going to give you a few quotes that I've, I've picked out. So Europa Bio said, a blunt, one-size-fits-all approach may have unintended consequences, potentially hampering Europe's ability to develop and identify therapies independently, ultimately relegating it to a tertiary market for therapies developed elsewhere. And um, They also add that there are 27 different pricing and reimbursement pathways. So obviously, each member state has their own policy and, and ways of marketing. Uh, FBS says, if the EU pharma legislation goes ahead in its current form, then Europe is set to lose another one third of its R&D by 2040. It will cost Europe around 2 billion euros a year. I mean, none of this is very positive, is it really?
1: Yeah, you you know that I'm sometimes a party breaker when I say uh, when I discern what we can do and what we cannot do on European level. Pricing and reimbursement is a national competence, so this is something that we cannot really do a lot about. Uh, uh, but what we can do is uh, is uh, make EU legislation uh, such that we have predictability for companies, and that is very important because what because what the Commission is proposing now to reduce the incentives. Uh, the baseline incentives which are guaranteed uh, so the regulatory data protection uh, but to increase the potential possibilities to get additional incentives on top of that to have more years of regulatory data protection in the end. The problem with that is that this is something that is not certain. You cannot count on this. You cannot make business plans based on something which is not, uh, which is unpredictable and this, uh, 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 this depends a lot on outside factors and this is definitely not good for the company. So if companies get additional incentives, uh, depending on factors which are outside of their control, this is not something, this is not very good for planning future investments. So, what I think is, should be the starting point is that the, the baseline, the guaranteed incentives are not, not reduced as proposed by the Commission to leave them in a kind of uh, um, in a situation where they are now, approximately. And but, but then to see what are the areas where, where we have gaps, for instance, uh, pediatric medicines, medicines developed specifically for children, medicines for rare diseases, etc., where, where still more than 90% of the patients do not have available treatment for rare diseases at all in Europe and and to provide additional incentives there but it's very important that these uh, these incentives are not made in a way that they depend on factors which are outside of company's control so this predictability is very very important and retaining this baseline of uh, data protection on the other aspects, I think there are also there are some positive aspects uh, to the com- to the Commission's proposal. Uh, the idea of uh, of streamlining and fastening the procedure in front of EMA, we saw during the pandemic then that uh, that that uh, vaccines were uh, approved much faster than was typically the case for uh, for medicines in front of EMA. So if this could be done for medicines, if we, if for medicines we could be fast uh, for vaccines, if we could be faster for vaccines, if we, if we can if we could um, uh, get rid of certain unnecessary administrative uh, steps in the whole process, why not uh, use the same approach for other medicines as well? So I think, uh, of course, uh, we have to protect uh, safety of medicines uh, and, and provide all the controls which are necessary in the approval procedure. But obviously, if we approve the vaccines, if we consider them to be safe, then obviously with uh, there is a possibility to reduce this procedure, the, the length of this procedure, without uh, jeopardizing safety, also for other medicines as well. So I think definitely what Commission uh, proposes goes in the right direction. I think they could be even more ambitious. So also reducing certain certain deadlines, especially the deadline for the commission uh, giving the final OK after the EMA procedure has finished. And this is something that I, that I support. And with my amendments, I, I want to go even further in terms of streamlining and, uh, and uh, simplifying and fastening the whole procedure. Also, I think the idea of sandbox is a good thing. So the idea that uh, that for new innovative medicines, we could have a more flexible regulatory procedure uh, to see how it works, That so that we are not so rigid in terms of the whole regulatory environment for approving new medicines. I think for small companies, this is especially important because because this all of this administrative burden that EU imposes upon them is especially problematic for them because big companies have big uh, legal departments, etc. So they, they are more equipped to handle all of this bureaucracy, but small companies not. So this idea of using these sandboxes to have a more flexible approach for developing new medicines is something very good. Unfortunately, my position is not shared by everybody in the European Parliament. Uh, the, the, the leftist political groups, political groups who are to the left uh, of the centre, uh, it seems to me that are trying to use this whole legislation to score some political points for elections. And it's easy to score political points by attacking the industry. So I think they consider this probably to be an easy target. So they they go even further than the Commission in some areas against the industry. For for instance, the, the main rapporteur for the regulation... For which I'm the EPP shadow rapporteur, and the main rapporteur is from the Socialists. He wants to get rid of the sandboxes. He wants to get rid of the, of the of the voucher for antimicrobials. He wants to reduce the regulatory data protection even more than uh, proposed by the Commission. And this is something which definitely is not a good approach because uh, we because industry has to be our partner. We cannot provide equal and timely access to medicines in Europe without without uh, having a good uh, like regulatory environment for industry. And as I said, if we want to be competitive, if we want to be less dependent on outside country, outside powers like China. India, etc. We need to provide stronger incentives than than we have now. So I think so. This is kind of my approach. I think we have to be partners with the industry, to see what we can do to stimulate development of new medicines. But what is most important is to focus on these those areas where we have the biggest gaps and where, where the need is the biggest. Which means we have to have have help small companies. We have to we have to provide stronger incentives for orphan drugs and for pediatric medicines, so medicines which are specifically developed for children, and not be populistic, uh, not to score some easy political points, but to really be serious and try to see how we can work together with the industry to have better healthcare in Europe.
0: Thank you, MEP Sokol. I think that was a good dose of realism there for everyone who's watching. Um, and I'll allow Kristen and Vivian to come back on that, but I want to come to you, Hilda, then. You heard a lot um, of the kind of realism, you could say, um, that Europe needs more ambition. There's too much burden, especially on small companies um, from our MEP um, in our panel, but set the scene then for us as to where you believe the EU biotech industry is and how this pharma legislation could transform the landscape if it's done in the right way. And it really would be interesting to get your insights, especially looking at it um, from the aspect of the people um, needed on the ground, you know, to make this innovation, you know, the, the healthcare professionals, the PhD students, the people running clinical trials. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, who's
2: involved. Well, actually, the I3H Institute, and this is really the basis going 10 years almost back next, year's, uh, next year, was set up uh, by Michelle Goldman, who at that time came from IMI, the Innovative Medicines Initiative, now IHI, um, and he, with all, his, all what he saw, the ways academia and biotech and big pharma collaborated together with re- uh, regulators and patients, uh, patient advocates, he saw that there was much more needed to educate the next generation of healthcare professionals wherever uh, sector you enter or enter, yeah, what your background is or where you head to, to the future. So he set up the interdisciplinary program in... Uh, Healthcare innovation that really joins master students, PhD students, postdocs with coming from bat- different backgrounds, going from basic research to medicines, reaching the patient and back, looking up on all the different challenges, but also obviously highlighting the opportunities from uh, the technical point of view, from the regulatory point of view, uh, patient point of view, pa- patient centricity for sure is key. Uh, from an investment point of view, and this was an academic program. It runs in different faculties, overall universities in Belgium and beyond. And there we saw that Europe, and we have a, a great example with the VIB, the Flemish Institute for Biotechnology. Europe has great, an enormous potential in terms of biotech. There is an enormous potential to have academic inventions be translated into spin-off companies but there was a need for an advanced master really in uh, biotech and medtech ventures so teaching people or not teaching help them develop further with respect to all the change all challenges looking at Europe comparing with uh, the US comparing with uh, Japan and this master has been set up by I3H and uh, the Solvay Brussels School of Economics and Management. And is headed now by the former dean, uh, Philippe Vergaon, and Marc Deschamps, who was uh, last, year, last year awarded as Biotech Manager of the Year. It's really from experts to people who want to manage next or, or who want to be involved in c level biotech companies from different perspectives thought by... Experts in the field and there I think that the a gap is filled. It won't solve the problem But much more need. and again, I'm coming there much more need to be evidence-based Education where people see what practically works what doesn't how we compare how how we can compare Europe and how we need to reinforce to compete with China and US
0: Leaving China and the U.S. aside, I mean, there seems to be a breakdown in collaboration somewhere within the chain, within Europe. So where is that? Where is this breakdown happening on the sort of EU level
4: or
0: within
2: I would say, well, if we look at breakdown, I think there is much more need for incentivizing public-private partnerships at all stages, really from early basic research to... Um, clinical trial research to, or clinical trial development, to really market access and seeing how we can earlier um, grant access to patients. There I think we need harmonization and we need to uh, collaborate really at all stages. If we think about ATMPs, I think there is a need for uh, registries, European registries, where data can be shared in most uh, sensitive way, obviously, but centers of excellence where patients can really benefit from the added value care that specialists and interdisciplinary team can bring, and I think there we can really target centers of excellence and not do everything everywhere. Okay, so Kirsten, let's bring you in though. So
0: as a as a VC, I mean, talk to us a little bit more about your company, but I mean. Are you attracted to European companies, or is it too difficult for you to get involved if there's too much red tape?
3: So we only invest in European companies, and um, the rationale for that um, at the inception of your care was that there is a lot of untapped European innovation. However, there is a translation problem of that innovation into successful biotechs. And so we said, OK, if we source these directly from academia or we find promising biotechs, and then we are there to basically handhold with them so that they have an experienced team next to them along with capital, can we push the needle uh, to go for success? I do believe that to be the case, and this kind of comes back on your point on having an educated workforce and having this you know, Solvay's master's, and I'm a very big fan of that program, um, however, the problem is that in, in, in Europe, being competitive is sometimes seen as being not very nice. And so
0: it's, it's, it's a mindset
3: issue? It is. There is a mindset issue, clearly a mindset issue in Europe. However, this mindset uh, penetrates all levels, uh, all the way up to our legislation, which I think is the point of why we're here today because we get wrapped into these kind of endless loops of where we say we want to help, we want to control everything, but let us stay on our conservative laurels. And that is a big problem, because we are in a risk industry here. Innovation in the healthcare space is very risky, because if we knew the answer already, there would be no need to do clinical trials. And well, since this is a therapy for patients and humans, We must do clinical trials. There's no way around that. So that means you need to find people willing to take a risk at the very early stages of innovation. They're only going to take a risk if there is a reward. No reward, no risk will be taken, especially in Europe, where the majority of VCs have a very conservative mindset. Now, is Europe starting to become more attractive to Europe and China? Absolutely. However, they want to bring those opportunities outside of Europe because they say Europe is too complex. There is too much red tape. The ecosystem is too slow, and there's not enough capital. So this current piece of legislation is not going to help encourage people that Europe is willing to go faster, except for, as I think has already been mentioned, streamlining some of the regulatory processes. But then we get back into this question again of, oh, is my project just unmet medical need or is it high unmet medical need? And all the terms and all the definitions then become very difficult for a company to anticipate what is our You know return on investment that we can offer to our investors so if the investor cannot calculate that they will then have a successful roi on their risk they'll say i walk away i'm not going to get involved that's it and if it's too difficult to do that then the whole ecosystem will just fully depend on non-dilutive money which isn't a viable model in the end
0: (laughs) before we go to vivian i want to ask you then so i mean what would you have liked Um, this legislation to have done to really have
3: broken that conservative mold? Yeah, I think reducing, of course, protection for, you know, any company, this is not the right way to start. Um, I do understand that we want to offer medications to patients at reasonable prices, but I think more legislation which is supporting Innovation to be able to return on their investment is what we need to focus on. And then there'll be other ways to return this money back to the patients at the end, like promoting innovation to have better manufacturing processes. Um, I think streamlining the regulatory process is going to help. That's going to bring costs down. But rather than putting the pressure on and saying, okay. Um, we're going to offer you less protection, we're going to offer more difficult scenarios for you to be able to find a pharma partner at the end of the day who's also willing to take a risk. That, for me, was not the right way to start. So let's go further. Let's say we keep everything where it is and we offer even more incentives to SMEs. Let's drive the innovation envelope as far as we can. Now, maybe there should be as well in my personal opinion, some protection of European IP as well, so that we don't have a drain on innovation outside of Europe. If US companies want to come in, and Chinese companies to want to come in, maybe they need to pay a price for that, a different price than what Europeans would. And I say that as an American. So. <laughs> <laughs> OK, um, Vivian, your thoughts? I mean, as a
0: small company, I mean, does this legislation incentivize you know, companies like yourselves?
4: definitely i have uh, some things i would like to add so i would like to say that nothing that's not solidly available at the time of decision making uh for a venture capital or private private equity can be a positive influence especially in an already fragile innovation landscape taking into account other challenges geopolitical inflation cost of capital for an investor Uh, therefore we do need clear um clear, uh, definitions, clear timelines. Uh, we cannot uh, you know search between the definitions. What is an orphan drug? How long do I have? Um, and uh, how long will I be protected? The high uh, unmedical need and you know unmet medical need, as Kirsten alluded to. Uh, this will allow us to take advantage of everything that is given to us. Uh, Also, something that is very important uh, to attract, to be able to attract capital is, I think uh, we need to bridge the gap between academic institutions um, and uh, biotech companies. Um, We need to realize and clearly focus on translational research and the value of creating value, making products, and basically, it's not because we are aggressive, it's because we want to address people's needs. It's because we want to be able to offer better, new therapies to all Europeans. Uh, therefore, uh, this, this also meets, is something that we need to, to, to consider. Uh, so from, from the side of a, an SME that's seeking to attract investment, besides all of the micro-parameters uh, focusing on the company itself, the good pipeline, the talented people, uh, which are plenty, Um, in Europe, the solid work that's already there. We do need uh, micro-parameters to also be favorable for us, like to have available an ecosystem that will support drug development from translation through to clinical research and to marketing authorization, even though marketing authorization um, for an uh, an SME would probably have to partner with a more mature biotech. So we do need to have availability of expert knowledge, a favorable a favorably regulatory framework to facilitate through the very difficult stages of the development, especially the early development. Um, we do need to consider that we need to foster partnerships and collaboration with other SMEs and big pharma. So the presence of organizations, association, innovation hubs, all these do help a lot but uh, definitely uh, the environment and the ecosystem would have to be really favor- favorable and really help innovation. Um-
0: oh, I, unfortunately I think Vivian has phrased in, but we'll come back to it. Um, so let me be so cool. Let me follow up with you um, on the, the points that Vivian especially was raising there. I mean, how can, you know, smaller companies, SMEs, use this new farmers legislation package to really help them, you know, compete um, in the space where obviously big pharma has, you know, the biggest stake, you could
1: say? I th- uh, yeah I think we need to change it. We need to change w- a lot of things which Commission proposed. As I said, I think we have to uh, we we have to have clear definitions. I agree with that. Uh, so this is why I propose to delete uh, the high unmet medical need this concept and uh, to replace it with breakthrough medicines, which I believe uh, will provide a much clearer definition and clearer parameters that we have. Uh, what is also what is what is also important? What is also important here is so, so. I think that's that's something very important on the incentives. As I said, more predictability, so have a guaranteed basic baseline incentive, and then to focus uh, for additional incentives in those areas where need is the biggest. Also, also streamlining and and making and and even more simplifying the, the procedure. That's also some in front of Emma, That's something which is which I think is also very important. What we have to keep is uh, said the sandbox because this gives possibility to have uh, to experiment and to have to try out new regulatory approaches towards new medicines without such a, such a big regulatory burden, without such a big bureaucracy. And I think for small companies this is especially this is especially um, Relevant on the on the on having special incentives for small and medium-sized enterprises, it's that's always questionable how, how legally this can be this can be done. But it's something that's definitely possible to look at. But I would like to also add that this is uh, that this legislation is not the silver bullet which will solve all the problems. So we have a lot of pieces of EU legislation on healthcare level which can make the difference. So first, uh, I would like to mention European health data space for each time the Rapporteur, and, and now we are negotiating with, with the, with the council on that uh, because uh, the need to access data has been mentioned a lot, and this is and definitely uh, for developing new medicines, especially for rare diseases where you don't have enough patients to conduct phase three clinical trials having more real-world evidence available, having more data available from the actual uh, medical uh, practice is of crucial importance. This is why we have to uh, have European health data space, which will make it possible for also small companies to access data uh, without uh, having to pay uh, big, big, big uh, fees for that. Uh, in under the same conditions, under 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 positive conditions, under beneficial conditions, as uh, re- as researchers, as universities, etc. Because health data space uh, can really make make it possible for small and medium sized enterprises to access data which uh, that otherwise they could have. Uh, also, what is what is of extreme importance is, uh, even though, as I said, that uh, pricing and reimbursement is a national competence, we need more coordination and more transparency. So we have a transparency directive uh, from 1989, 35 years old, which has never been changed. And this legislation, unfortunately, is really not up to its task. Because, so I believe that in the next mandate, we have to strive for revision of the transparency directive to make national procedures for Uh, deciding on reimbursing medicines uh, much clearer much more transparent uh, with the clear clear, uh, uniform set criteria which can then be Uh, make it much easier for companies uh, to prepare uh, for these national procedures and to have their medicines reimbursed and I believe that can make really uh, the final stage of approval of medicines to be paid for from the public purse uh, much much better, much faster than than it is now. Of course, whenever somebody tried to change, whenever the commission or the parliament tried to change the transparency directive, some member states were against that but really we cannot have equal access to medicines in all EU members states without more uh, clear more transparent rules on the tr- on, uh, pricing and reimbursement and the eu has the competence to act there but we need more political will to do it also and also also one la- also what what is very important uh, that has also also been mentioned uh, centers of excellence so having so, so uh, not not develop not developing uh, resources in all member states for everything, but to really focus on most imp- important areas uh, on Europe and why and why not having centers of excellence for certain diseases for special rare diseases which cover more than one member state. So this is definitely something which is much more efficient, which is much uh, which is uh, which is much better in terms of uh, uh, in terms of providing uh, faster healthcare to patients uh, and having more, better organization and better use of resources that's not that much related to small and medium-sized companies, but in terms of providing better healthcare in Europe, this is something that we can do, and this is something that definitely can also also make a difference, and this is something that I fully support, but we want to do that, we need more EU funding, we need the European system of certification of these centers of excellence, and we need much clearer rules on cross-border healthcare than we have now, and this is something that I've been advocating strongly since the beginning of the mandate, to change this whole legal framework on cross-border the healthcare to make it much clearer and much more streamlined than it is now. Uh, of course, uh, there are other pieces of legislation, uh, a, a lot of reporting uh, uh, and a, li- a lot of uh, obligations that imposed uh, to the industry because of the Green Deal legislation. Uh, so a lot of new reporting related to environmental protection, la- related to uh, to forced labor, to all other areas, uh, which is not uh, bad in itself. So having, uh, if if we look this uh, in an isolated way all of these reporting mechanisms and all of these reporting obligations they are not problematic but if you took them all of them together if you, when we accumulate all of these additional obligations bureaucratic obligations administrative obligations that we impose for the industry this this presents an enormous problem so the, definitely we need to cut red tape we, we need to see which uh, which of these obligations that we impose on uh, small and medium sized companies are not imp- are not Necessary are not crucial, which can be joined together, and I think that definitely we have a lot, a lot of work cut out for us. Obviously, we cannot do a lot uh, in the next three months before the end of, before the end of the mandate of the Parliament. But I believe in the next mandate uh, with the next Parliament and next Commission, we will have to, we will really have to look at all of this new legislation in a more systematic way. So, not kind of in isolated boxes, but to really see the whole landscape and see what we can do really to reduce all of these obligations which are which are uh, which are imposed on our industry
0: okay, thank you MP Sokol. Um, so just to pick up um, with with Chris and Hilda on, on, on what MP um, Sokol was talking about there, so he was talking about the tools and problems that sMEs have. He used the word data, um, funding, red tape. And then I think also I'll come to you first, Hilda, because you were also discussing the education of the workforce. So there is one thing that we haven't discussed yet, something that could help SMEs, which is AI. And AI could really help with drug discovery. But they're not, that obviously needs a lot of you know, retraining, reskilling, um, and that perhaps would be costly um, to especially small companies. So what are your thoughts then, especially um, taking into consideration everything that um, MEP Sokol talked about then?
2: Okay, with respect to in, indeed AI, uh, you need to train people for sure, but there's a huge untapped, I think, potential with respect to active ingredients that can be repurposed. Well, and um, I had a question actually for MEP so called yeah, With respect to, okay, if you turn or if you delete uh, unmet needs and high unmet needs and with translated into breakthrough medicine, how do you define breakthrough medicine because there's a a huge difference between breakthrough innovation and just incremental small line extensions how do you incentivize this how do you measure it again it's about measuring and seeing what effects you have with certain incentives because if you talk about innovation what is innovation it's an added value for the patient You need to bring in their voice. It's also about education in this way, and there are so many um, um, initiatives ongoing and training of patients. They are the experts of their disease. They know what their disease does to them and how quality of life can be added. So you need to reward an addition of quality of life, but how would you define breakthrough medicines then
1: I, mean, I will not go into detail now because we are currently negotiating that at the, at this at this at this very moment. So this is something which is which is which is pretty sensitive. We are now trying to find the political agreement between the between the between between the groups in the European Parliament. So uh, so speaking now publicly about about uh, what we what we propose, uh, maybe is not the best way how to how to do it at this time. But if you want, we can arrange a separate meeting and go more into detail. On that, on what's going on, what's going on, but I, as I said, I, I do not want to now go into details on this while we are at the very moment nego- negotiating the exact wording wording on this. So everything, so whatever I say will not be definitely the end, the end result of uh, of the negotiations. If you can, if you can understand that, but definitely, but definitely we can we can have a se- separate bilateral meeting and go more into into detail than on this particular topic, especially once we know the direction in which in which the negotiations will will proceed, okay? Yeah,
2: maybe Mm -hmm. then just to finish on the AI question that I think, well, really, we need to look at strong ethical and legal frameworks. And then just, I think this week or last week, uh, don't remember, WHO also really tapped upon this that we need to think and reflect. And of course, the legal framework will always run behind science. But if we don't start questioning this much more now and train people to reflect upon this, we will have. But
0: the problem is that then you fall into that typical EU dilemma where they're too scared of new technology and they over legislate and they bring rules. I mean, obviously, it needs regulation, you know, um, especially for um, younger people in society as well. But then if you start talking about rules before understanding the technology, because that's what happens a lot when it comes to AI. Um, the legislators start legislating without a true understanding of what the technology is. You want to say something as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, it... I'm a big fan of AI and the concept of digital twins within the healthcare space, and I think that's why it's also very compelling to a lot of VCs. However, the reason I'm interested in that is because I do believe this can be a game changer for SMEs at some point to bring the cost down on processes, but also on clinical trials. So, yes, we need to protect individuals' data. But if we do that at the cost of innovation, we'll just be left behind. And so no one will benefit from that because we won't see the cost savings that that can provide. Now, to be the devil's advocate, how's that going to fit into the new green plan, I'm not really sure, because AI and um, I think we all know that degenerative AI is extremely non-green um, in terms of energy consumption and water consumption. Um, and if you've seen the appetite recently for big pharma in AI, um, you know that they're very much interested in that space. So it would be great as well if they would see this as a challenge to become uh, more green and, and motivated within that area. Um, yeah, I, I have the same feeling uh, that, that you do. I mean, let us not go into this typical EU conundrum of over-regulating before we even know the potential. Now, if we just let it out there with uh, no regulation at all, then it's very difficult to go back. So. Yeah, okay, it's it's a not an easy question to solve, but I, I do believe we should not let this opportunity pass us by. Let us focus maybe on things like process development, where we know that the risk to individual safety is going to be, uh, you know, uh, greatly decreased. Um, I do believe as well that this is the, operation, the, the opportunity for collaboration. Um, it's an opportunity to collaborate for small SMEs with bigger players. It's also the opportunity for SMEs to come together. Because let's say you have one SME which is working on process development within the healthcare space. And you have three or four SMEs which have different IP, but they would all benefit from that. Maybe they can join together uh, on the early days to try to incorporate this. And maybe we should foster more of these type of collaborations within Europe that have an actual return on investment, rather than the money just going into reporting and deliverables. Um, I've seen a lot of great EU projects just get lost, um, you know, they pay the project coordinator a lot of money to just chase down deliverables. That that makes no sense. I don't think that Europe needs to become a venture capitalist on itself, but maybe changing its mindset a little bit to that on how can we also get a return on an investment of our non-dilutive money would help deblock the situation a little bit.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, Just to say, um, please do scan the QR code um, to ask a question to any of our panelists. There you go. It's right there. And you can also read that. Um, report as well okay so picking up on what kirsten was saying about collaboration and vivian um want to get back into um the rare disease landscape with you you're a small biotech company as we were saying um and i believe um you're going through an investment round right now so what do you need to really offer investors would you say so that they commit to a company like you um, that deals with you know cell and gene therapy um what do you need what do you need to give them so that they will commit to you in
4: the long term then Yes, so investors regardless if they're venture capitalists or private equities, they're very specifically look for return of their investment. They want to make profit within a reasonable and defined time frame as much as possible. Everyone realizes the value of cell and gene therapies and acknowledges the need to be able to provide definitive treatments for medical problems and not having to rely on um, management symptom management approaches. So in order to achieve uh, investment and retain investment, we need to be able to demonstrate um, a good pipeline that uh, we can offer a variety of services and increased capabilities that are, uh, we are able to adapt and expand them in the future. We do need to be talented and committed in running and working uh, in the business. Uh, we do need to have solid work already completed and uh, that can be demonstrated and can form basis for building business further. Um, It's very important for SMEs to be able to make partnerships, uh, different stages of development with early on with other SMEs uh, for process development and later on with uh, with, uh, bigger pharma. So all these uh, parameters are important, and I think all these are scrutinized before an investment uh, comes.
0: Christian, would you like to follow up on, on, on what Vivian spoke about there?
3: Oh, I'm not sure that I have a lot to add <laughs> on top of that, but I, I definitely agree. I mean, there needs to be the possibility to understand what is my time frame uh, to exit. And, And that's the question that I get every time I talk to other investors for the companies that we've already invested in. How long is it going to take for this company to be able to exit our portfolio? How long will it take them to get to the market? And once they do get to the market, how long will it take them to tap the full market potential while they still have, you know, any kind of protection? And you say, well... Um, Now let's drop this by another year and then let's decrease this and let's decrease this and let's decrease this. And suddenly this is not very attractive anymore. So I I agree with with Viviane on this point. I think as well for for rare diseases, this is so crucial because let us not forget that rare disease is a great innovation model. Um, Most rare diseases are using really innovative, um, you know, techniques. I mean, this is where a lot of our new technologies are coming from. And so to just cut it off at the knees saying, I'm sorry, but you're never going to get any kind of market return that justifies this cash influx, that's a big problem. And so I think this creates this kind of vicious cycle here where you say, let's shave a little bit off here, a little bit off here, a little bit off here. And what ends up is a completely unattractive opportunity so, if we want to continue not just rare disease innovation, but innovation in general, we need to support, um, you know, the rare disease innovators because they are doing things which are really groundbreaking. Did
0: you? I, I, I don't know if anyone else picked up on this. I think it was on Tuesday. Um, you know, splash all across the, you know, the front pages, at least in the UK. Um, there's a blood test that's come out that measures the protein levels in your blood and that can detect alzheimer's years i think a decade before someone mm-hmm. even shows symptoms i mean it's stuff like that that is it, just frankly amazing isn't it
3: it is but uh, in that case i mean that's falling into the preventative in preventive medicine category and today we don't have any financial uh, motivation to invest in those opportunities because the payer prescriber system does not support that. So we are supporting the treatment of disease, but we are not supporting the prevention of disease.
0: What would it take to change for you then?
3: Uh, for, for me, I mean, I'm personally a be- big believer in preventive medicine. However, would I invest in it? Probably not because my shareholders will, you know, hold me over the barrel at the end of the day. Um, but what we need to do is to say, okay, preventive medicine can also have incentives. It can also be offer incentives to the patient, uh, responsibility of the individual. Um, you know, let us, but that, that's really paradigm shifting uh, work that needs to be done. We need insurance companies to see that prevention is actually valuable, uh, and governments as well. And today we're just not there yet. The EU
0: doesn't add value to preventive medicines. <laughs>
3: I don't think so, no. Uh, mm-hmm. That's maybe uh, a kind of um, difficult point to make. But today, the payer-prescriber system in Europe is not promoting uh, preventive medicine, no. We are not driving um, exciting diagnostic uh, you know, possibilities, which um, I think that's a great place to start, right? Mm-hmm. If you really want to drive personalized medicine and you really want to drive personalized diagnostics and you want to make sure that you're not missing out on people early on and how is their mental health and their nutrition linked into all of that? Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, great, as, right,
0: as, as someone who, you know, who comes into the category of patient, I mean, I think for all of us, that sounds pretty amazing to have, you know, more preventative care um, for the concerns that we have in our daily life. Um, Sam, if so, if cool, you coming to you then, we're talking about preventative medicine. Um, how Would you say you can, you know, as an MEP, try to at least ensure that the concerns, the health concerns of the everyday person isn't left behind in this discussion?
1: Uh, it's it's a million dollar question. So so, uh, so what we can do from the EU level is also provide financial incentives. We can finance programs. For instance, when you speak about prevention, because prevention is most cost effective uh, way of uh, way of uh, addressing healthcare needs. And uh, and but it, so sorry. Yeah the the light here goes uh, goes out automatically if, if I'm not moving so this is the way how European parliament saves electricity. Uh anyway uh so, uh, so this so prevention is the most cost-effective uh, way of uh, providing healthcare. Unfortunately, this has not been recognized uh, enough by the member states by national health authorities. What EU can do is fund projects uh, which go in that direction and to try to provide some kind of financial incentives and stimuluses. But unfortunately, we can again we cannot say to the member states and order them to fund more di- uh, and provide more funding for treatment A or which which is connected. with Prevention than than the treatment be uh, so, but def- definitely what we can do is try to engage and coordinate between the member states more more uh, as well on this issue. But I wanted to also pick up on what was said about the orphan drugs and about the the rare diseases. So uh, so as I said, I think rare diseases are one of those areas where we need stronger incentives. This is why I propose that to, that uh, for orphan drugs in general, we leave the 10-year regulatory data protection while to add Additional two years for the so-called breakthrough orphan drugs, and since I was asked, maybe I was asked before about the definition of breakthrough orphan medical orphan medicines, I said I cannot go into detail now. But the idea is that uh, that we focus on those medicines which are. Uh, which pro- which provide uh, which provide meaningful uh we which, uh, which provide meaningful reduction of of uh, of mor- of uh, morbidity which provide meaningful meaning, meaningful reduction of um, of worse health outcomes uh, uh on months, uh and pro- and uh, also and also provide a a new and unique uh, a new and unique uh, mechanism of action or uh, those med- those those medicines for uh, for treating diseases for which there is no satisfactory treatment on the EU level. I agree that these definitions in themselves are not completely clear, so you cannot have a definition which kind of is one hundred percent. Clear, clear, and certain, and uh, that it's completely uh, clear what it what it covers. Uh, but what is important is that we also leave a possibility for the agency for the for EMA to develop scientific guidelines to be more precise about which treatments this will this will have. But essentially, these are the two criteria. So first, those orphan uh, breakthrough medicines, uh, breakthrough orphan orphan medi- uh, medicines uh, uh, are those medicines uh, treating disease for which there is no satisfactory treatment at EU level or those uh, with uh, with a new and unique uh, uh- uh, mechanism of action, uh, which provides meaningful reduction in morbidity. Let's say, without going into too much detail. And I think for this kind of medicines, we need these additional incentives on top of what we of what we have now. But uh, but what we have now. So to leave to leave uh, the 10-year regulatory data protection for orphan med- uh, for orphan medicines. So not to go in the direction of the Commission, which uses it. But then to provide on top of that. On top of this baseline uh, protection, to provide additional two years uh, for breakthrough medicines to really stimulate invention of new medicines uh, in those areas where needs are, needs are the biggest.
0: Thank you, Vivien. Wants to jump in. Are muted. Are you okay? You muted not, on your no, side. No, yeah.
4: No. <laughs> Maybe. So um, I also want to say that I'm very enthusiastic about all the preventive medicine approaches that can be available. Um, Also, uh, imagine therapies, therapies that really cure a disease that can also be available. They're really cost effective. And currently, they're not a solution for European patients. So... um, Because all these either um, uh, preventive tests or therapies take years uh, to develop, it's a long development process, and it's an extremely expensive development process, I want to really say that we do need the incentives as early as possible, uh, especially SMEs for early stage. Um, And uh, the recent example of the COVID vaccines, how quickly those partnerships developed, how the development process was shortcutted is is a a good example. And uh, we do need as much as impetus as possible on the table from the beginning. So yes, it's important to protect the regulatory data, it's part of the IP of a company, uh, because it's, it's an investment to create it in the first place. Um and uh, yes, the time um, is needed. So we do not to we, we do not want cut and shortage of the time uh, in order to develop the drugs. We cannot rush clinical trials. It's not safe. Sometimes uh, situations uh, make it difficult for, for patients to be recruited in clinical trials. So yes, definitely we do need the time and the incentives early on on the table from the beginning.
0: Judging by what you're all saying today, it seems that this legislation really isn't up to task. Uh, To quote a song, 99 problems, um, and definitely the legislation is one of many. Uh, I can
2: see that you're furiously writing away. So what are you actually thinking of? Tell us. No, I was thinking indeed about the ATMP Zolgensma, that this is a perfect example of where there are changes needed all over the innovation cycle. And it started with, well, here in Belgium, baby Pia, I think the Belgian people know her. There was the Cure Zolgensma, a one-time gene therapy. But this baby couldn't access it because it was uh, in the US. There was a crowdfunding uh, where people had to send an SMS two euro, they got to the t- two million euro to give to baby Pia that access. Now, HTA, at HTA level, at uh, health technology assessment level, there's the collaboration Beneluxa, which really did a joint procurement, decreasing the pr- price for uh, uh, the health system, where I think we can learn a lot from and really build upon the lessons learned. Zolgensma now is really, there is, at a patient level, a prenatal screening installed in Belgium. That's because this drug needs to be given as early as possible. Prenatal screening, also really very important for the patient care. This data can be collected in registries. We can do research upon this. Um, Then, indeed, obviously, there's an improved quality of life, normally uh, this patient wouldn't have survived until now. Now she goes to school. It's amazing to see. But indeed, also for this um, administration of gansma, I think collaboration is needed with different disciplines in centers of excellence. We don't need to repeat things all over the European member states. And I think through collaborations, we can do A lot of things and earlier access can be given. And if there's an, um, if SMEs need to or can get extra uh, or an extra monopoly time through giving access to therapies in all 27 EU member states, for an SME, this is nearly impossible given the limited resources through collaborations at different levels, I think. We can do much more. So I think collaboration here and interdisciplinary collaboration is key. Okay, well, let's go. (laughs) Well, listen, look, you can keep scribbling away while
0: I ask some of these questions then. Um, Here's a question for Briston. The commission's proposal aims at expanding the hospital exemption for ATMPs. How big a risk does it represent for companies
3: involved in cell gene therapies? (coughs) (coughs) Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's... This is definitely risky because um, cell and gene therapies are definitely going to come under fire in the next two to three years. They're going to come under fire because these are extremely costly therapies. And how can you well translate the cost of improving or saving a patient's life to a product that costs between 300,000 and 1 million. And on top of that, the manufacturing process is very expensive. These are highly skilled personnel which are needed to run those manufacturing processes. And so every euro is going to count, right? Because you're going to really become come under the radar. And I think that that's going to have a massive pressure because you really need to, I think that, um, this exemption it's not going to help to motivate people to invest into that space and to really drive this to what we need in order to find this fine balance between cost acceptability but also innovative therapy and it's it makes me think of a very sad uh, story that I, I use as a cautionary tale very quickly and uh, i worked with a a biotech company which had uh, a very nice product um, which had wonderful data and would have prevented uh, antibiotic resistance for a number of different drugs. Now, this product was not seen as being very sexy, let's put it that way, because it wasn't within this, you know, cell and gene therapy space. And so the price which they were able to charge was not very high. So, That did not attract a lot of investor money, and it did not attract a lot of big pharma. So the company said, okay, let's transition away from this antibiotic space, and let's go into immuno-oncology, a much harder space. They had very, very nice data there, but then what came back? Investors said, oh, sorry, but your product still isn't very sexy. So not only are you able to treat AMR, and are you able to improve cancer patients' life, but because this is not able to get a very large price point, we're not going to invest. And the company eventually went bankrupt with a very nice product that they could have commercialized as a medical device directly in Europe. However, because they were not able to get enough investor money to do that, they decided first to start in the U.S., where this was a drug. And because it was under a drug designation, it was not seen as a very exciting product. So today, that product, which could be in the hands of patients today, is not available. Now, I tell this as a cautionary tale because I don't want the same thing to happen to the cell and gene therapy space. And if we're not careful, we will drive it <laughs> into that. And uh, uh, that's the best I can answer your question, I think.
0: Um, I won't lie. Um, okay, next question to Mr. Sokol, and it's from Okadad. It says, in light of the faster access to medical innovations in the U.S. compared to Europe... So, again, touching a little bit on what question was talking about... Um, what actions can the EU take to accelerate the availability of new treatments while maintaining high safety and efficacy standards? M Sokol. be so cool.
1: Yeah, uh, so we have two procedures. So, so, just to make this clear, and you have to distinguish them. So, first, so first is the question of uh, approving new medicines to be put on the market itself this is what is uh, uh, the prerogative of ema of course the final decision by the co- by the commission but ema is the one who does the evaluation process after that after we approve the new medicines to be put on the on the market so on all, all on, on the entire european market so so you go to ema instead of having to go to 27 national agencies but after that whether this medicine will be reimbursed or not and under which price is decided by each individual member state so we have two stages if we want to get medicines available for the for the patients when we speak about uh, the ema procedure so as i said uh, the the proposal goes in the good in a good direction so some things are definitely so, so some things are definitely made faster and and more simple i believe that we can do more i, I propose certain amendments uh, along those lines but the crucial thing is to reduce the 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 things which are repeated, which are which are purely bureaucratic, uh, which take a long time, but without obviously jeopardizing the safety and efficacy of the of the evaluation process itself. Also, I believe that we can shorten the final approval procedure by the Commission, uh, because after Emma has done all the work, then the Commission needs to make the final decision. I personally think that this is completely unnecessary. I think that it's possible to give uh, the minute to to Emma to make the final decision itself, instead of losing additional days or weeks for the Commission to make this decision. But uh, uh, we don't don't have the the political... uh, uh, landscape to do that, but at least shorten these deadlines as much as possible so that the Commission has to make the final decision on basis of Emma. Evaluation within a few days. Uh, so I think that here uh, uh, we've done we've done a lot. We all, as I said, we also uh, I proposed in my amendments to cut down on some of the deadlines uh, within the whole process itself. But definitely, this is something that we can do. On the next step, on the pricing and reimbursement, here we have we definitely have problem, and the problem is that uh, that we have different national procedures, different national criteria that are completely uh, non harmonized, and unfortunately, they are not transparent in the same. Way. So Way. In some member states, you have a very clear published criteria how these decisions on pricing and reimbursement are made, but in some countries, you have a very broad and vague criteria, and these decisions are done by certain committees uh, of the health insurance funds uh, without any clear procedural rules, without clear guidelines, and without clear published criteria on how to do that. Uh, so to, to change this, as I said, we need to revise the transparency directive. We need to make sure that all national authorities publish their their procedures and their criteria uh, publicly. And then, when they approve certain medicines for reimbursement, that we know what criteria they used to make this to make this decision. Uh, so, uh, so, so this is something which I think is very necessary on the tying of. Incentives and access, because we have this in the commission, in the commission, in the commission proposal. Uh, this is something that is definitely a problem for SMEs because it's hard for a small company to put uh, a medicine at the same time on all 37 national markets. While on the other hand, it's true that that certain medicines, that it takes some medicines. Uh, Several years more to get into a market of Bulgaria or Croatia than to get to the German or French market as well. So we need to find some kind of a balance there. I think what my colleague uh, from uh, Pernil Weiss proposed goes in the right direction. That uh, that we do not tie incentives with access, but that when when a men- member state makes a request to provide us with medicine, this has to be done as soon as possible. I think this is this is a good approach so that we guarantee that member states really get those medicines that they need approximately at the same time but not to to force uh, the companies to initially to initially file for reimbursement in all 27 national markets because this is something which for small companies is definitely a problem but as i said it's it's necessary it's it's crucial that that when there is a need for a medicine in certain member state that this is uh that this is uh, uh, uh that this can be uh said there and that this can be acquired as, as, soon, as, soon as, as soon as possible, and I think that, uh, that the negotiations in the parliament will go in that direction, because we cannot have first- and second-class citizens anymore. So it cannot be the case that in some member states, uh, it takes one year to, uh, for medicine to, after approval to get to the patients, while in some year, uh, member states, it takes four or five years. So we need to change that, but as I said, again, without imposing unnecessary burden on small and medium companies.
0: Running out of time. So very quickly then, you talked about first, first and second class citizens. Um, does this really um, help that cause? You know, this legislation, is it, is, is it really the equaliser that, you know, the European Union is hoping for when it comes to helping patients, but also, you know, in increasing biotech innovation within Europe?
1: Uh, the, I, I hope that the final version will be as such because Commission proposes, but the final version will, will be decided by the Parliament and the Council jointly. So I think that we can that there is a place to make a lot of improvements. As I said, you already proposed amendments to go in that direction to to make uh, to make this whole system much more friendly for small and medium companies, uh, much more uh, much uh, better in terms of incentives to develop new medicines. So I believe that the end result can be much better than the original commission proposal
0: okay vivian i'll I'll just quickly run through so vivian next your final thoughts then are you just hopeful or confident perhaps that this legislation is the is charting the great path forward or not
4: um i i want to be hopeful um as uh, MEP Sokol said, I want to believe that what we are discussing right now will be taking into account and there will be some gradual um, uh, change. Um, what is required bureaucracy-wise can be implemented and requested gradually. Um, the uh, extension of the hospital exemption in combination uh, maybe with a uh, faster reimbursement by giving the opportunity to a country to request a, a drug, uh, they, and not having to go through the, the reimbursement um, uh, in all 2027 20, member states. It's also something towards uh, this direction. So eventually I do dream that European patients will be able to receive all breakthrough therapies. And I want the EU patients to have access to clinical trials hospital exemption or not hospital exemption and I want Europe to be a region particularly attractive to conduct clinical trials and develop drugs uh, with the ultimate aim of having therapies available for people and not having therapies in the drawers uh, midway through development or not having therapies full developed through to marketing authorization and not being able to reimbursement and having them you know, um, abandon, having companies abandon uh, the region because of that. So I want Thank to, to so be hopeful much. for the um, future.
0: Kristen, over to you next. I mean I, Should I even use the word hopeful?
3: Um, in its current state, no, I'm not very hopeful. Um, but I do hope that what we've said today and what a lot of other people have spent a lot of time preparing at Europa Bio is, is heard. Um, and that that will have some positive effect. Um, The the problem for me right now is that in its current state, I find it very punitive uh, for SMEs. And uh, one problem that really bothers me is that I don't think that any SME wants to have a second-class citizen in Europe. I think they want every patient to be a first-class citizen. That is my belief, Um, maybe idealistic. But should it fall to the SMEs to convert some member states from the status of second class to first class. That, I think, is mission impossible. And that's the problem with some of this legislation, is that the burden on the SMEs is very, very high. It's kind of saying, oh, let's push all of this back onto you. Um, You know, you want to take over and and solve antimicrobial resistance. Well, one-year extra voucher. Here, but now it's your problem, um, and and I think that this is we need to accept that this is not going to fall all onto the SMEs to solve every single problem just by giving them a few small incentives um, and by saying okay maybe we don't decrease uh, any of your uh, regulatory data protection but we don't add anything to it either. But um, you know here go out and and solve the world's problems, uh, and I think that this is why I'm really not very hopeful. Um, there needs to be concrete actions in place which are, respons- I think, add responsibility for, for the EU, but also for each individual member state to support the SME and this uh, conversion.
0: I have to say that my energy is quite
3: depleted <laughs> with this
0: legislation.
2: Final thoughts, Hilda? Um I would like to end on a positive note. Uh, <laughs> with, um, there are many initiatives ongoing. And collaboration there is key. A collaboration is built upon trust and a balanced relationship. I don't think that the proposal as such is balanced. We know from Andy Law, who is the great economist at MIT, that at this moment, Big Pharma has a 3% excess in return, whereas we know that the true innovation is with um, SMEs, biotech SMEs. We have a great potential in Europe I think we can do much more to reinforce our position. But indeed, collaboration and interdisciplinary education is key. The right people, the right place, with the right mindset.
0: And with the right legislation, obviously. Okay, (laughs) well, listen, we've gone a little bit over, but um, many, many thanks to Thomas of Sokol, Vivian, um, and the great ladies next to me, Kristen um, and Hilda. You know, this, sometimes when we have these conversations, you know, we can't. Always, um, you know, laugh along. Um, it can't always be positive, um, but hopefully, the kind of you know, icebergs ahead that all of the panelists have raised um, can perhaps energise everyone in the room, everyone watching online, um, anyone who is legislating on this, to re-energize this legislation and get it really working um, for the benefit, not just of biotech um, industry, but also for the people. Well, listen, look, it's been a pleasure to be hosting this debate. Um, Thank you to everyone who has um, um, been with us today, to you, the audience, in the room and online, and also to the panelists. Um, From myself and to your bio, you're active. Thank you so much and take care and bye-bye. Thank you.